I have something to talk about today. I hope, well, I'm good because it's your story today. I'd be worried if you didn't. It's about how I kind of feel like we take the periodic table for granted. I mean, <laughs> talk from your own perspective. <laughs> okay, but Every listen. time I see it, I'm in awe. Oh, wow, Greg. Wow. <laughs> That's, a bit, right. That's a bit bold. Show me up on that one. But I just feel like, you know, the way that we teach it in school is like, oh, these are the elements and we have always known what they are. These like fundamental building blocks of chemistry are just there on the wall. And that they're structured in a way that we can kind of understand. Yeah, exactly. This is about some historical ghosts in chemistry's past. Haven't seen them on the periodic table. I know. It's about one guy in particular Mm -hmm. who is responsible for discovering several elements, including one of the most essential ones to our lives, oxygen. 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 (laughs) You got it. You knew it. I was like, which one do you mean? And he never gets the credit. And... He was a Pomeranian. A dog? I mean, I'll tell you after the intro. <laughs> That's the only Pomeranian that I know. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, or indeed people. I am Greg Foote. And you know nothing about this because I, Marin Hunsberger, am about to tell you this amazing story. Dogs and periodic tables. Well, I tricked you a little bit because when I say Pomeranian, Pomeranian. I mean, he was born in Pomerania. <laughs> oh, he's not a big, like, poofy, fluffy... He's from the same place that that dog is from, and it's in what is now present-day Germany. But I just thought that was a little fun fact, fun fact to throw in there. So the year is 1773, uh-huh. and we have no idea what we're breathing. At this time, scientists are still struggling with the whole idea of what the heck air is is and what's in it and how it works, which again, I feel like we totally take for granted, like this idea that I feel like most of us have that, you know, oxygen is in the air. We've got some nitrogen in there. It's different kinds of gases altogether, right? This idea is really coming into shape at this point. And beforehand, we have no idea what air is. Yeah, but also they thought that like there was an ether that kind of just ran through the whole of the universe, didn't they? You know, I've got in my head, I've just got that song that goes, no air. I gonna breathe with no air? This is remarkably on point for what we're about to talk about, Craig. We're gonna get into some of those experiments in a little bit. Those poor mice is all I have to say. Jordan Sparks, that's who sung it. Oh, nice. No air, no air. I mean, I was supposed to breathe with no air. Carry on, sorry, what? <laughs> okay, so this is where we get our main man for this episode. His name is Carl Sheila. 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 Okay. And he, it's because it's like a German-ish type name. You know, he's from Pomerania. He moves to Sweden, but the way, the Germanic way of saying his name is Sheila. It looks mm-hmm. like Sheel, but we're going to say it's Sheila. Okay. So he's a tradesman and he's not really working class because he has a good job and he, he makes good money but he's definitely not a gentleman, right? He's not nobility. He doesn't have a lot of wealth at his disposal. He has an everyday job. He works as a pharmacist, making stuff for people to take his medicine. But he's a very curious person. He's got a very investigative mind and he has lots of questions about the world, including what the heck is air. What are we breathing? So I asked John B. West, who's a physiologist. He's a chronicler of medical history and he's a professor emeritus at University of California, San Diego. Uh, I had a great conversation with him and he gave us a sense of what the prevailing ideas about nature and specifically air are at the time. Well, it was a bit of a mess, the science in the middle of the 18th century. We're talking about early uh, 1700s. People were not aware of what was responsible for combustion, for example, they got all mixed up with a thing called phlogiston, 
which is so complicated, I'm not sure I can easily describe it, but phlogiston was thought to be the component that caused fire. This is a little bit confusing because you and I are so used to the concept of oxygen, right? Like we know that if you deprive a candle flame of oxygen, what happens to it? It goes out. Exactly. Like things need oxygen to burn, right? So just picture this world before we have any of that knowledge and you're trying to figure out why things spark or why things burn or what is being burned, what's being released, right? And so this theory that they come up with is called phlogiston theory. Yeah, phlogiston theory. I remember this. It's essentially like the fire element in yes, a way, exactly. isn't it? exactly. It's like, hey, anything that burns has this mystery thing called this phlogiston in it. it. I, I love all these, I was going to say old ideas, but I love all these ideas before they turn into the ideas yeah. that we have today. The ways that we had of thinking about the world before certain milestones are totally fascinating. I completely agree with you. It's almost like we're going back into like this mythical time, even though this is the 1700s where oh, we're like thinking. Alchemy. Yeah, exactly. It's or like time. the four humors of the body, yes. right? Bile and blood and things like that. That was sort of the basis of medicine. That's what we're talking about in chemistry here with fire, earth, water. The four elements. And you know it. So we have this phlogiston theory, prevailing theory at the time, that when something burns, it's releasing all of its phlogiston, which is that substance that they think is being burned. And what's left is what they're calling dephlogisticated matter. Uh So that's hilarious. And this is where our second character in the story, in the discovery of oxygen, comes along. And to be honest, he's a little bit of a rapscallion. Suffice to say that most of the important scientists at the time who were interested in this area, believed in this phlogiston theory. It had a stranglehold on on science. And it wasn't until Lavoisier, the French scientist, came along, it wasn't at all clear from his publications exactly when he discovered what he did. Certainly, Lavoisier was the first person to recognize that instead of being a phlogiston being released during a fire, in fact, what was really happening was that oxygen was being consumed. And although that sounds a relatively simple change of concepts, that was really very difficult for people to accept. So Lavoisier, the rapscallion, Lavoisier. as you described him. Does this come down to the fact that if something's got phlogiston in it and when you burn it, that phlogiston's released its mass should decrease, but actually what they see in samples is the mass goes up and therefore he thinks that something's added to it. Yes. Yes. I'm not going to get into the complexities of the experiments because they're very complicated, but one of the most interesting things to me is that chemistry at this time is basically just taking different materials that people find in the world and like burning them or immersing them in acid or tasting them. (laughs) It's just like, I don't know, put it in your mouth, see what happens. Which is uh, kind of freaky, to be honest. But here, John has introduced us to Antoine Laurent Lavoisier, who, as he describes, is a little bit sharp. And he says he doesn't need to go into it in great detail, but I do. Good, good. (laughs) Because Lavoisier is such a character. He's a tax collector. 
in Paris in mm-hmm. the late 1700s. So he's considered a gentleman. He's part of the bourgeoisie, if you will. And he's very wealthy. So he has a lot of money to like play around with whatever he wants. You know, glass is very expensive in these days. So he's got all his glass instruments and he's got a lot of help. He can source these materials that he wants to light on fire and things like that. So he's getting to be a very accomplished and well-respected chemist. And in 1775, he gets made the commissioner of the Royal Gunpowder and Saltpeter Administration. Oh, what a job. What a job. I mean, if you want to burn stuff, that's the way you want to, to do be it. the commissioner of the stuff that if, burns. If you're an arsonist at heart, <laughs> you're, you want somebody to pay you to explode <laughs> some stuff. Need some gunpowder? Got it. There you go. So what we're calling this saltpeter at the time is what we now know of as potassium nitrate or sodium nitrate. It refers to both. And the reason people are interested in it is because it's involved in guns going off. It is what you need to add to gunpowder to make your gun work. It's also what you use to cure meat. Yes, exactly. Because (laughs) if you notice those nitrates and nitrates, that's a preservative. So people were finding, this is a little bit off topic, but people, and appeals to my micro part, people were finding that uh, if you added saltpeter to meat, then it, you, you wouldn't get botulism, which is very handy. But on the flip side, if you added it to charcoal and sulfur, you It'll would get gunpowder. <laughs> it will explode. So the Paris Arsenal hires Lavoisier because saltpeter is a component of gunpowder and they're trying to make better weapons. And Greg, what happens when you pull the trigger especially on an old-fashioned musket. Is it a flintlock? Yeah. Right, so you Somebody's watched Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> One through to 77 or how many, <laughs> how many of them they have now. Yeah, so you pull the trigger, the flint kind of flips down, spark goes off, and then spark ignites gunpowder, which creates loads of gas and expands and pushes exactly. projectile out. Exactly. Thanks, Greg. This Good is job. like my ballpark. This is like <laughs> chemistry and physics is like my, yeah, my, my marin microbe love. You're the expert here. I know, exactly. <laughs> this is a really good one for you. So in 1778, Lavoisier publishes this paper and he is the first, due to his work with gunpowder and exploding things and seeing how sparks make things go off with gunpowder and saltpeter, he's the first one to ever use the word oxygen. Oh, so he coins it. In 1778. Okay. Remember that date. Okay. And it's because of this work, this paper, this naming of this element that he's often hailed as the father of modern chemistry. But... Is that fair? I great question, Greg, because there are not one, not two, but three people in addition to Lavoisier who get written out of this story and who do not get credit for oxygen. And we'll get into it right after the break. And we're back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. And Greg and I are just talking about the year 1778, which is when Antoine Lavoisier, gentleman scientist in Paris, is Rapscallion. And Rapscallion is publishing this paper where he identifies and names oxygen as an element, something that cannot be broken down into anything more fundamental, and saying that it's an essential component of the air we breathe. But it turns out Sheila, our lovely, quiet Pomeranian pharmacist, who now lives in Sweden. He's been experimenting with saltpeter too. And he has made his first notes on this substance that would later become known as oxygen in 1770. Oof, eight years earlier. Yes. And he he does most of his work in 1773 and publishes in 1775 before Lavoisier, all the way before. It actually gets even worse. Uh, there was a great deal of 
of secrecy and skullduggery about trying to find out what other people were doing, for example. In fact, Lavoisier was very naughty about that. And that is, Shaler wrote a letter to Lavoisier about his findings. Lavoisier never said that he'd received the letter. And I think I'm right in saying that the letter was only fairly recently discovered amongst uh, Lavoisier's belongings. So Lavoisier was, was, was naughty in some ways. He was, he was very uh, secretive about what he was doing. So hang on. Mm-hmm. You've said that Sheila is working on what we now call oxygen in 1770. Yep. Publishes in 1775, mm-hmm. writes a letter to Lavoisier. Mm-hmm. Lavoisier then talks about this thing that he calls oxygen in 1778 and becomes known as the father of modern chemistry. Yep. What did the letter say? What did he know from Sheila? I'm so glad you asked, Greg, because I'm about to ask you to read it. <laughs> have you got it? I do, I have it. Sheila is a, a not only a scientist, but also a master of many languages. So he writes it to Lavoisier in Lavoisier's native French. Also but does. this is, of course, the English translation. Good, because my French is... <laughs> you got to brush good. up on that there, Greg. No, bien, no. Okay. He says in this letter, this letter says, because I do not have any large burning glass, I beg you to carry out an experiment with yours in this way. Exactly. So Sheila doesn't have this glass that Lavoisier has access to. And then he goes on for many oh, sentences. Blah. Silver, nitrous acid. Yeah, blah, to detail blah, out. Alkaline you know, tartrate. Exactly. Put it, all of the Bell details jar. and steps of the experiment. So then he ends this letter with, This is the way that I hope that you will see how much air is formed during this reduction and whether a lighted candle can keep burning and animals live in this air. By this experiment, you will do me a great favour. I would be infinitely obliged if you would inform me of the result of this experiment. I have the honour of remaining with great esteem, monsieur, your very humble servant. Right, so he's outlining the experiment that he wants Lavoisier to do because he doesn't have the equipment. Exactly. And he has done a version of it and he has been able to burn these things and see that something is given off. He's isolating oxygen and he's gathering it in this pig's bladder because we don't have rubber at the moment. So the balloons that we have available are made out of animal stomachs. And he's isolating this purer air that he's talking about as opposed to corrupted air, which is this non-isolated oxygen. It's just regular air with all of the stuff in it. He's isolating the oxygen by burning various things and then dunking them in acids, etc., And he uh, sees that a lit candle in the highly oxygenated pig's bladder burns so brightly that it dazzles his eyes. So that's one of the results of his experiment. He also then burns some things to deprive an environment of oxygen and puts mice in that area and sees that they die. Right. So it's coming together that this thing that he's isolating or taking away from environments is either feeding flames or making, you know, animals not be able to breathe. So this is all coming together. So Sheila, who's working in Sweden at the time, but publishing in German, calls this substance Luftfuhr, which is air fire or fire air. Amazing. Love it. It's pretty, it's pretty brill. Okay, so Sheila is doing those experiments. He's realized that highly oxygenated air is beneficial for flames and air with the oxygen removed kills animals, exactly. essentially. But there's an experiment he can't do, so he writes about that in a letter to Lavoisier 
1774. Precisely. So he wants Lavoisier to sort of replicate this experiment and verify his findings. And Sheila, you can see at the end of this letter is a really self-effacing guy, right? He says, I will be infinitely obliged if you would inform me of your result. I would have the honor of remaining with great esteem, your humble servant. So you can kind of get the sense of Sheila, who knows that Lavoisier is this great man of science. He's a nobleman. He sort of has this. He knows he's got to flatter him. Yeah. To do it. (laughs) And it, it gives you a sense of how Sheila feels about his own work too, right? This letter is the the first evidence we have of Sheila saying, like, I've basically figured out what's in air. And then he writes to Lavoisier asking this question. And guess what? Lavoisier never writes back. He never writes back. We never see any evidence that he acknowledges this or that he replicates this experiment, you know, as giving credit to Sheila for it. Not cool. Very not cool. And actually, this letter was only very recently found. We didn't even know that Sheila had written to Lavoisier and it just like disappeared into the annals of history and somebody recently found it in Lavoisier's stuff. So all of this drama is coming out. And Sheila is not the only one that Lavoisier does this to. There's another one. Of course. There's a British scientist from your neck of the woods mm-hmm. named Joseph Priestley. Priestley, yes. Who, Heard of Priestley. Exactly. He's a pretty famous guy. He's also working on identifying and isolating oxygen. And he's working on all of this after Sheila, but he is much more often mentioned alongside Lavoisier than Sheila is. People often think of Lavoisier and Priestley in the same sentence when talking about the discovery of oxygen. I asked Dr. Jim Marshall why he thinks Sheila is so often left out of this story when Priestley is not. And Jim is a professor emeritus in chemistry at the University of North Texas. Because he didn't publish first. <laughs> because he didn't publish first. Priestley was an opportunist and he he, he liked to toot his, his horn. And he promptly published weeks after he conducted an experiment. And believe me, that's very, very fast. Whereas Shayla was a very private individualist who didn't care for fame at all, whereas Priestley wanted fame. So it's it's the speed. Mm-hmm. So Priestley was driven by his fame, published quickly, became known. Sheila was all about the science. It's true. It's true. And Priestley is also publishing in English, whereas Sheila's publishing in German. So that makes it uh, a little bit less accessible and is a great, you know, just example of how language can come into play here. That happens all the time where people who originally publish in a different language that is not English may have discovered something first, but it's not widely recognized because English is technically the language, the international language of science, we like to say. Mm. So there are a lot of people who get left Real out. bias there, isn't it? It's true. I have to do a small side note here. And I want to talk about Jim, the guy we just heard from, Professor Emeritus of Chemistry at University of North Texas. He and his wife have basically devoted their lives to every summer going to all of the places in the world where elements were discovered. Oh, wow. It's so cool. And they have this repository of stories and photos on a website called Rediscovery of the Elements, uh, where you can check out their travels and their stories from those places. So what a lovely thing to do. He's amazing. I really love him. He was great to talk to. So Priestley gets the jump on Sheila by publishing these experiments first. They're doing very similar things, very similar work with mice and candle flames, burning things, glass bubbles, animal stomachs, balloons, etc. And the way that um, Sheila was doing that 
is that the same way as Priest is doing it? So Sheila was taking saltpetre and essentially reacting it with acid to produce that oxygen. There's small differences in all of these experiments. They work with different substances, but all in all, it's basically studying how things burn and if things live or die based on oxygenated or deoxygenated environments. So if they're doing very similar experiments, is that just uh, what happens as we see often with experimentation in science? Or did Sheila also write to Priestley well, with guess, descriptions of a, his experiment? That's a great question. It actually gets a little bit tangled because Sheila has written to Lavoisier. Mm. We're not sure if Lavoisier read it, if he just threw it away, if he read it and stole those experiments. We don't know. But what we do know is that Priestley and Lavoisier were in communication and were talking about their experiments together. Priestley is talking to Lavoisier about his experiments, which by all accounts, Lavoisier basically steals. So who knows really if Lavoisier has shared with Priestley Sheila's observations or if Lavoisier is just taking both of these men's information information. But Priestley talks to Lavoisier about his experiments, which Lavoisier promptly replicates and adds on to. And here's where the third forgotten person comes in. Are you ready, Greg? I'm so ready. Who is it? <laughs> Who's the other poor soul? It's Lavoisier's wife. Was she a scientist as well? She was. Modern historians look back on her and call her a chemist. Right. She, there's a couple very interesting things about her. Number one, she's 14 when they get married. Gosh. Gross. Lavoisier is 28. Double her age. Yeah, it's gross. Again, not cool, Lavoisier. Not cool, Lavoisier. Come on, man. Get your stuff together. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> not cool, Lavoisier. Wait, that would be amazing. <laughs> I need that in my life. <laughs> So unfortunately, that's pretty common at the time. But by all accounts, she actually kind of takes advantage of the situation for her own curiosity and scientific inquiry. She helps Lavoisier with all of his experiments. And she also learns English so that she can translate all of Priestley's correspondence for her husband. So she's involved in Lavoisier Gosh. taking all of this information from Priestley. So she will know what's happening as well. Yes, exactly. And she's assisting in the experiments and things. There are some engravings that include her in it, which is really cool. Good. Like along with the scientific equipment and the depiction of the experiment. Well, if she is a chemist, then she's probably just as active in the experimentation and almost possibly lead, like leading the research direction. One would think, you know, we there's not a lot written about her, so we don't know. But this is her other key contribution here. Some people think she may have hidden Sheila's letter from Lavoisier so that Lavoisier could get the credit for this discovery. Before or after they read it. Who knows? Mm, See, thickens. exactly. So those are our, our three forgotten figures from history that we've gone through. So we've got Carl Sheila, we've got Joseph Priestley and Lavoisier's wife. Does she have a name? She does. Her name is Marie Anne Pauls Lavoisier. Okay. So if we know all of this about the people who were doing these experiments before Lavoisier, why is he the one who so often gets all the glory for oxygen? And why is it his name of oxygen that sticks? Excellent question, Greg. We will talk about it right after the break. We are back and you are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. And we're talking about the reason the rapscallion Lavoisier always gets the credit for oxygen. And it's because he's the only one who calls it oxygen and crucially identifies it as an element. Ah, right. So... He Right. The others had referred to it, I guess, as, you know, fire, air mm -hmm. or, or an element in the sense of those four fundamental elements. But he's referring it to as an element as per the definition of all these other unbreakable uh, chemical things that have been kind of named at the time. Exactly. Because Priestley and Sheila are still totally stuck in this way of thinking that is centered on phlogiston. They're still thinking about their experiments all in the context of that, you know, more rudimentary, less 
what we might call less evolved way of thinking about air and talking about phlogiston and deflogisticated matter, etc. I should also say that Sheila was also very much affected by this phlogiston theory. So although Sheila was clearly the first person to make oxygen in his uh, laboratory and uh, also Priestley clearly made it, it was Lavoisier who was the first person to clearly define exactly what it was and and therefore, and, and of course that was a, a critically important advance in physiology because as listeners will know, oxygen is the source of, of life in, um, in living things. So this is a great time to point out where we sort of are in our understanding of elements, right? Like from ancient times, we've had gold, we've had tin, we've had silver, we've had lead, and we've known that these things were unbreakable, downable into smaller things. So technically, we know of these as elements. But the first element that's like scientifically isolated is 100 years before all of this oxygen drama, and that's phosphorus. And this is also 100 years before we're putting all of these elements into some kind of organization with the very first kind of periodic table that takes the first 60 or so elements and organizes them based on their properties. So we are right in the heyday of figuring out what the heck our whole world is made of and and really developing our understanding of these fundamental building blocks. So John, at the very end of that last introjection from him, remember he's a professor of physiology, specifically of pulmonology, so the way that people breathe. And he mentions that oxygen is going to be very important for medicine for physiology. And this is really funny because Priestley, after one of his experiments, writes a little anecdote about how he feels. Remember, this is the time when people are just like breathing and tasting all of the stuff that they're making in their (laughs) chemistry labs, which is not safe lab practice, by the way. (laughs) Although I do know a chemist who that is what he still does. Oh, no, really? Is he he like a like a tasting, like a flavor guy? No, he's he's a high-level professor of chemistry at, oh at a big university. But um, quite often he'll just be like, well, it's just how I work out what things are. <laughs> just like, <laughs> so we're what? still doing that. Oh my he God. He's such a champ. So Priestley, after one of his experiments, is breathing this highly oxygenated air that he's created. And he writes that after breathing in this result of his experiment, he feels peculiarly light and easy for some time <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> Who can tell but that in time, this pure air may become a fashionable article in luxury. That's what they were doing with like nitrous oxide laughing gas yeah, and stuff as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. There's all those reports of them like giggling away as they try <laughs> these gases. He's kind of right because you then got um, oxygen bars, right, we didn't oxygen you? bars, exactly. Which I just like to say that normally, you know, if you are healthy, then you've probably got 99% oxygen yeah, saturation, so it's not it. like that's going to help. But anyway. It might make you feel peculiarly light and easy, though. Well, that's probably the other stuff that they're adding, Joseph adding Priestley. to be honest. <laughs> and of course, we're adding this on to these observations that mice in a higher oxygenated environment are living, whereas mice in poor oxygen conditions are dying, right? So there's this evolving idea that we need oxygen to breathe, which again, you don't ever think about people not having known, but this is pre, you know, pre-oxygen and during oxygen theory, people are figuring this out. So 1778 is when Lavoisier steps beyond 
phlogiston exactly. and says, this is one of these things that we have been discovering that cannot be broken down into other parts. This is an element and I'm going to call this oxygen. Precisely. He comes up with the name oxygen because in some of these reactions, it acidifies something else. And oxy means acid, gen meaning formation or birth. So it's an acid maker is what Did oxygen is. That. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's great. And even though, as you and I know, this is correct and oxygen is an element and Lavoisier is technically a visionary for identifying it as an element, there's a huge pushback because the scientific community at the time is so entrenched in phlogiston theory. And that's why I've been referring to it as oxygen theory, because for a long time, it was like this controversial new boundary pushing idea. Isn't that crazy? I love it. I love it. So Lavoisier, first to name it as an element. Priestley, arguably the first to see its therapeutic benefit. But Sheila first to actually do the experiments. But he's totally written out of the story. He's just back home in Sweden working in his pharmacy and quietly discovering even more elements. Really? Ooh, he discovered a bunch. He discovered more elements than any other person. There's one exception to that because there's a nuclear scientist called Gjorsel who discovered a lot of uranium elements in Berkeley. But I'm talking about the natural elements. Shaler discovered more natural elements than anybody else. First of all, he discovered chlorine. He he discovered that by heating up manganese dioxide in the presence of an acid. Also, he discovered tungsten. He discovered molybdenum. And while he was at it, he discovered hydrofluoric acid. So essentially, he discovered hydrogen fluoride as well. Uh, he discovered barium. He recognized that. So he's super busy in his laboratory. And and Jim does mention, yes, discovered the most, quote unquote, natural elements. So ones you'd not, you're not making in a lab, like with a big reactor, ones that are just sort of like lying around out in the earth. Also, we should mention that is slightly disputed because as we have been discovering along this story, all of the histories of these discoveries are very tangled. Yes. So who discovered what first? Pretty controversial in a lot of different cases. So it's either him or another guy, but Sheila is hard at work discovering lots of different things. And not just elements. He's also discovering molecules like hydrofluoric acid, different compounds that are going to become really useful medicine, chemistry, and our understanding of the way things react with each other. I was really curious about Sheila as a person, just because how does a guy who is just working his day to day life, pharmacying in a small, tiny town in Sweden, how does he become this great, basically intellectual who we don't give a lot of credit to, who discovers so much about our world? And so I put that question to John, who has spent a lot of time studying Sheila and his life. Well, I think his motivation was probably that of most scientists, including mine, and that is it's so interesting to discover new things about the world. And and I think that was his interest. As you just mentioned, he was absolutely remarkable in the number of discoveries he made. He discovered a whole series of new elements. And uh, so in, in the scheme of of the history of pharmacy or the history of chemistry, he's actually a very important man. You you ask around and very people will will know about Sheila or Shayla, whatever his name was. <laughs> See, even the guy who spends so much time and effort studying him is like, Sheila, Sheila, eh, meh, eh. <laughs> so I did history and philosophy of science as my major uh, undergrad. Had, had you ever heard of Sheila? No. What? <laughs> I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, I forget things easily. But like, <laughs> maybe you didn't show up to class on that day. Lavoisier, like 
they're on the tip of my tongue, right? I kind of know a little bit of, of them, but Sheila, I'm going to need to go You're look kidding. through my notes and see if, I mean, I, I very much hope I have come across him before, but I, he clearly hasn't stuck in my mind. Not as someone who discovered potentially the most number of natural elements ever. Exactly. And I don't know, just oxygen, <laughs> casual, important. <laughs> but as you say, there are so many people involved in all of these things. It's hard to kind of know It's hard everybody. to sort through, especially when people are hiding letters from each other and there's academic uh, sabotage. We should also to say, I'm sure we have in the, you know, whilst recording this podcast, spoken about these people as scientists. And actually the word science wasn't coined until 1833. Whoa. So before that time, everyone should really be called a natural philosopher. Oh, look at Greg coming at this time. in with his, his history of science yeah. knowledge, putting, so, setting uh, us straight. <laughs> so just a little point of accuracy. Good to know. Yeah. Well, and it's, it is interesting that you say that, Greg, about your time uh, studying science history, because when I was researching this episode, I'm looking up, you know, the order of when elements were discovered and all of this history of the periodic table and different elements, especially oxygen. This is totally different in each source that I try to reference in this episode, who is listed as the discoverer of oxygen. Some websites mm. just say Lavoisier, some say Lavoisier and Priestley, some say Priestley and Sheila, and they leave Lavoisier out of it. So I think our understanding of this history is changing. and this is why it's so interesting. Exactly. And some institutions are recognizing different people and taking credit away from some others and giving yeah. it back to some. So it's all evolving even now. That's why his stories are so brilliant. There's all these twists and turns and extra characters. Surprises, one might subterfuges. say. Subterfuges. Yes. We are going to come to the end of our story rather morbidly, one might say, with everyone's deaths. I'm not surprised because they've been <laughs> handling all this stuff and they had no sense of what it was going to do well, to their exactly. lungs or their neurons or whatever. Unfortunately, Sheila just takes one too many tastes of arsenic or maybe accidentally inhales some chlorine gas and he dies, unfortunately, of liver failure. Pretty young, maybe in his 40s. Something interesting happens on his deathbed. He has never married in his life. He's spent his whole life dedicated to his chemistry set. And he does this interesting thing where three days before his death, he gets married. Wow. He marries the widow of the former owner of the pharmacy or another pharmacy in his town. It's unclear so that she can inherit his pharmacy after his death. Oh, right. Which that's, is really interesting. That's rather lovely. Um, I wonder if they had had a relationship, but just they didn't we have want no it idea. to be kind of public because of Wouldn't that be interesting? You know, stigma at the time. His property would have been given back to the town, basically, or maybe just to some random person. She might have just been a mate and he might have just wanted her to... Exactly. Be sa be secure in continue her Continue that. And yeah, be secure life. in her your future, yeah. So what happens to Priestley? Priestley is an ardent supporter of the revolutions in France and America. And Britain at the time is shaking in its boots about a revolution on its own shores of some kind. And so they basically just oust Priestley. They're like, if you're into this, man, you just get out of here. We don't want you here. This is too, too revolutionary for us. And he's ousted from the scientific community in Britain and he moves to America. And he dies in Pennsylvania, I think, somewhere. You can visit his house. Jim has. <laughs> Of course, Jim has. Of course. Jim and his element adventures. Exactly. And he dies in relative obscurity in America, having been highly embittered by his experience with Lavoisier. And what happens to Lavoisier? What's going on in France at the time? Revolution. Revolution. French Revolution. And as we've said, he's a nobleman. He's a member of the bourgeoisie. He gets guillotined. Oh. Yeah. Which Off is really, with his head. Uh, yeah, a bit, just a bit, which is really unfortunate because even though, as we've said, like, come on, knock it off, Lavoisier, get your Literally. stuff together. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Too soon, Greg. Too soon. <laughs> 
even though he hasn't been uh, the hero of this story necessarily, we haven't liked him very much for what he did to Sheila and Priestley. No, there's an amazing brain in that. He's in a that genius. Head. He really is. He in really is quite brilliant. And unfortunately, that head gets cut off. Well, thank you to all of them yeah. for their amazing work. Yeah. And you might be able to argue that actually the rivalry between them kind of spurred them on. Exactly. And I think it is a great argument, Greg. This brings us right home with the fact that competition, yes, maybe drives some innovation, but if they had all worked together, maybe we would have discovered even more amazing things. So it's an argument for scientific collaboration over competition or trying to hide things from each other or trying to publish first, even though John does make an argument during our conversation that this should serve as a a message to all young scientists to publish as soon as you can. (laughs) Yeah, don't just hang around like Sheila did. Poor Sheila. For the love of science. It makes you think, doesn't it? What other things in chemistry or physics or engineering or whatever are there unsung here? Heroes in, like I know that's what this podcast is about. It's trying have to dig out those so stories. Many episodes I, we could I cover cannot for that. Wait Greg. to kind of just keep uh, being like, oh, hey, did you know that actually, you know that person who gets all the glory? Nah, actually, it was so and so around the corner who wrote the thing, and they just read it exactly. And along the way, I kept discovering these huge surprises. Like this episode was supposed to be just about Sheila, but we come across Priestley and Marie Anne Lavoisier's wife. Had mm. no idea she existed. So there are all kinds of little treasures one can unearth in these histories. Well, if you want to make sure you catch those future stories from science history do make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed this story about phlogiston and oxygen and yeah that thing that that (laughs) air fire please do rate and review the show it really helps it grow as does telling your friends please share it to anyone that you think is going to enjoy this if you've got a story from science history that you'd like us to tell or a discovery or invention that you'd like us to dig into and find the story behind drop us an email brilliant at seeker We would love to hear from you. That's brilliant at seeker.com. And it's time for us to roll the credits. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Marin Hunsberger. If you want more of me on the internet, I'm at Marin B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, Marin Hunsberger on YouTube, and I'm on Seeker's YouTube channel. I just got to sit here and listen and loved it. My name is Greg Foote. If you want to find me on Twitter and Instagram, it's just at Greg Foote, also on the YouTubes and such like. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatagadur. Finally, another huge thank you to our two expert guests we had on today, Dr. Jim Marshall and Dr. John B. West. If you want more on them and their work and all of the other sources I used to write this episode, you can find that in the podcast description. Join us next time for when Greg is going to tell me a story. Mm-hmm, going to be a good one. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.